Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Spiritual Forum. I'm so glad you're here. It's a beautiful day in Wisconsin, in the USA, and today my guest is speaking from the wonderful nation of Belgium. Uh, before I get to that, I want to remind you to rate, review this podcast, go on the YouTube channel and subscribe. I'm trying to get my subscriptions up. I'm pretty new on YouTube, but that's a preferred viewing format for a lot of people. And if you subscribe, that'll kind of bump me up a little bit and uh, keep this podcast going. Thanks everybody who donates this podcast. At this point in time, it's a 100% donation-based podcast, which is why I don't have any ads. That may change in the future. Uh, I may have to monetize it, but for right now, I really appreciate everybody who's giving to sustain this podcast, which is a voice of hope, inspiration, and awakening in the world. Let me introduce you to my guest, Jonas Atlas. He's a Belgian scholar of religion who writes and lectures on religion, politics, and mysticism. Though rooted within the Christian tradition, Jonas immersed himself in various other traditions from Hinduism to Islam. After his studies in philosophy, anthropology, and theology at different universities, he became active in various forms of local and international peace work often with a focus on cultural and religious diversity. Jonas currently teaches classes on ethics, spirituality, and religions at the KDG University of Applied Sciences and Arts. He's also an independent research at the Radboud University as a member of the Race, Religion, and Secularism Network. His latest book is Religion, Reality Behind the Myths, which unravels the most common misunderstandings about religion, and that's what we're going to be centering our conversation on today. Welcome, Jonas. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. I love talking to people across the Atlantic Ocean. It's it's kind of exciting that we can kind of connect in this way, and not only on topics, but you know, also online. And um, you can bring you know everything that you have to a broader audience through this podcast. And I know you have your own podcast, but I'm really great, glad to have you on, and um, very much appreciate the academic work you do and your book, which I did read from front to back. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into that. And, and why I think it's so important. Uh, can you share with the audience here today a little bit about your own spiritual journey and how you got to where you are um, and writing these kinds of books and doing this kind of research? Sure. I guess the first thing I have to talk about, which is important to understand where the book comes from, is that I grew up in Belgium, and Belgium is what people would consider to be a heavily secularized country. Or so that's what people think, and um, but it used to be the predominantly Christian. So I was born and raised in a very loose Christian manner. That is to say, that a bit not really in line with the mainstream in Belgium when I was young. My mom still went to church. She prayed at night and so on. She never made a very big fuss about it, left us very open to follow our our own spiritual paths and so on. But the importance of it is that I've, I've never had this feeling that religion was a problem. It was a facet of life it was a dimension of my mother's life and prayer seemed to sustain her so that was just normal for me and then when i became 16 i started meditating um in in a more eastern kind of way and so on and being interested in buddhism and hinduism and so on brought me a bit back to my christianity and let me see that christianity with novel eyes let's say and with a new interpretation and because I was 16, 17, that brought me into loads of discussions, whether in pubs or uh, when I watch TV or simply in school and so on, where people 
kind of always had this argument, but you seem like an intelligent person. Why are you still believing in God? Why are you still religious? And so that's part of where my book stems from, this constant having to defend myself for somehow still being religious. So that's that's one part. I'm, I'm just a guy in the world with a personal religious bent and a, a spiritual path I'm going. And I never had the feeling that I had to renounce my religion or act as if uh, religion was problematic in itself. That's one part. The other thing is that it's simply my hobby as well. I like it in a in a in a way that other people like cars or food or whatever my thing is religion. And I mean the anthropological side of it. So one thing is the the personal spiritual side, and the other thing is, of course, they connect. They're not completely separated, but it helps to see them a bit separated in the sense that it's just my job, or I see it as my job, uh, to to research religion in its sociological and anthropological uh, manifestations in the world. And so another thing that we need to bring me to the book is that I have been married with somebody who's a Muslim from Turkey. And so I moved to Turkey and I spent some time there and I went uh, back and forth quite some time. And that got me more and more involved in various communities uh, or Muslim communities and living in Turkey. It gave me the view of how the newspapers and the media in general were talking about Muslims and were speaking five years after 9-11, so that was 2006. And it really startled me because everything I read really didn't have much to do with all the people that were around me. And so that got me as a theologian and as as an anthropologian, got me really deep into Islam. So that was the first part, this this trying to unearth the various uh, essential ingredients of Islam itself. I wrote a couple of books about Islam as well. Um, one, for example, where is a bundle of interviews where I talk to various scholars and activists and artists from all over the Muslim world. But somehow it always, um, or I noticed that behind or behind the, the the demonization of Islam in the West and behind the not knowing of Islam, the not being able to conceive the way that religious traditions in all its broadness really goes about doing things in the world or or manifesting itself in the world is this view on religion in general. So Islam becomes the the quintessential example of religion as a bigger concept these days in, in all the debates about religion. And so that brought me to think about writing this book where I try to deconstruct the concept of religion at large, the way people in general think about religion, because starting with those 16-year-old discussions and ending up with even more discussions about Islam, I noticed that there's a, a quite a common thread there and that I could finally really summarize the, the main arguments in about seven of them. And all those seven arguments really are a bit problematic from various perspectives, whether theological, historical, or sociological. And so that brought me to the book. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's fascinating. I think your your whole background is really fascinating and, and your interest in integrating all this. And, and I do think you have a unique voice in the world. Your book, the book, at least the one that I read, is, is a unique voice. I... Um, my mind wants to go in several different, <laughs> several different trains. I've got to decide which way I want to go. Um, I guess we should talk. Well, first, before we get into the myths, I, I, I just want to share with you that in the last few years, I've personally had a lot of awakening in, mm. in so many different dimensions of my life. And I, it happened you know, during the COVID years. And I'm realizing that we are living in a lot of myths. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of things that we take for granted, that we believe is settled, 
that we believe that we are really advanced in this way, or you know, science is this, or medicine is this, or what whatever religion is this. We we think that we're so you know so smart that mythology is something of the past, and we mm-hmm. can't even see this the stories that we're immersed in. And that's what I love so much because about your book is because there we have so many myths about religion and i even had a guest on a few weeks ago and we were talking about the the hierarchy the hierarchical nature of religion and mm-hmm. i was i i was i i i believe that i saw that but you kind of broke that down for me <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> through your book, but I just kind of assume, you know, there are some churches that have hierarchies for sure, but I kind of assume religion was an entity that was hierarchical and you kind of blew that away in your book. So I want you to know that my mind is wide open. I am mm-hmm. fertile soil for new ideas. I all, all of the things that I used to believe, I don't even know anymore is true. And this is what I love so much about myth busting. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, I can I can follow um, very much because in the I have the same feeling. I talk about certain myths about religion, but there's myths all over the place. The way we think about science, the way we think about the world and humans in general, and so on and so on. There's there's a whole load of them, and and probably because well, we've got a globalized world for quite some time now but still the globalization is going on and on and and being so connected to one another all over the world by definition will make us see things from different perspectives and i guess to to really mid-bust the myths about religion i really had to go to another country to another religion and be immersed in it to see the religious world with true new eyes. Yeah, I can, I can, I can get that. It, it's very challenging to see things through new eyes. And mm-hmm. my listeners know that my my prayer is to is you know, God show me what I cannot yet see. And I once I started that prayer, my world <laughs> started opening in in tremendous ways. And you know, as as much as I can take, and then you know, and then more because. I'm all about truth, finding, you know, what is what is real, what is true, and recognizing that we've been living in this soup, mm-hmm. uh, a matrix, I guess, of just <laughs> whatever we've inherited and uh-huh. we're conditioned. And so my my ministry, my personal intention is to release as much conditioning as possible for me mm-hmm. and and possibly find other people who are doing that because it's it's where it's all at. That's where consciousness is is growing and raising. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's get into the seven myths. Do you want to kind of briefly go through yeah, the seven? Sure. So the first myth is uh, the thing that most people think that religion really is about. It's about faith. It's about dogma. It's about believing in things mentally. I believe this. And that defines a religion. Certain sets of beliefs that you have to uphold to be a member of that religion. And from that belief follows certain things that you do. For example, I believe in God and God wants me to live life in this kind of manner, so I will. So beliefs and and ways of living go together or rule sets of rules and dogmas. That's the first one, that religion is defined by those. The second one is that religions are necessarily hierarchical, that we have a priestly class which dictates those rules and those convictions. Then the third one is that because of those rules and convictions, religions are always separate. That's to say, Buddhists believe this, and that's completely different than what Christians believe, so they won't mingle. Or Jews go about life in this kind of matter, and they really can't follow what the Muslims do, so they're completely separate as well. Um, The fourth myth is that uh, spirituality and religion are somehow connected, but also different types of things. And that gives or that brings about uh, a whole lot of people saying that they're spiritual, but not religious. And the but not is a, is a good example of, of the fact that the two somehow should be separated. And you could also be spiritual without being religious. And then the fifth myth is that religion and science don't really, really mix too well because religion is based on faith, which is irrational, supposedly. And science is a rational way of approaching the world. Those two really can't mingle too well. And when they try to, they start to conflict. 
And then the sixth myth is that religion, because it's built on irrational faith assumptions, it always leads to violence. And if there would be less religion in the world, there would be less violence. And then the seventh myth is that because of all the previous six, science being more rational, religion being too violent and too dogmatic and so on, a secular world, which is completely different than a religious world, is much better to live in. I'm curious, do you think when when I like when I go to Europe and mm. I see these beautiful cathedrals and it I, i'm I'm astonished by the beauty of the cathedrals and then to find out that much of Europe is not really quote religious but more secular, <laughs> do you think it's because of that? like this conclusion is that you know secular is just uh, a higher level of of being. <laughs> Oh, that that kind that strain of thought is huge in Europe, but we have to, of course, um, be nuanced about everything. Not everywhere in Europe, large part, large parts of uh, Eastern Europe are very religious in the sense of traditional religion, orthodoxy, and uh, orthodox Christianity, and so on. And Italy, of course, for large parts, is also very Christian. So we can't. Uh, painted with one brush very quickly, yeah. but yes. And in the parts where I live, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, France is really strong with its form of laicite, which really wants to push religion to the side or marginalize it in society, its official state policy and so on. So yes, in, in most countries uh, of Western Europe and Northern Europe, you'll find a, a huge amount of this secularist ID. Yeah, but of course... In the end of my book, that's where I finally go to. I don't believe there is really a distinction between a religious and a secular approach. So for me, all those people who think that they're living in a secular world are actually living in a religious world just as well. Um, uh, but the the cathedrals that you see, yes, those might be uh, a remnant of the religions that went before that. But that doesn't uh -huh. mean that we've come into this completely different type of world. But I guess we'll get to all yeah, of we'll that. Yeah, we'll get to that. I, I, it's just, it's fascinating. I just think that, I mean, in, in the United States, the secularism is also a dominant theme. But mm -hmm. we don't have the beautiful architecture that you have. Our our churches are pretty new compared to yours, and yeah. and so it's it's not so much a strange dichotomy to me as it feels like when I'm in Western Europe. Yeah, I can understand that, and it's because we have that long lasting tradition, and you see stuff that has been there for fifteen hundred years, and yeah. it is absolutely beautiful, and and so for the the secularist idea in the U.S in my view, is more of a political idea. Let's, everybody can have his or her convictions, but keep it to yourself and the state will determine the public square, something like that. And because of that, you still have also this strong, even political force on the religious right in the US, evangelicals and so on. And those are pretty uh, upfront and they try to create this tradition and make it manifest while in in Europe, you have added to the political idea of secularism, you have this idea of, oh, it's something of the museums. It's something of before that used to exist, but that's not something that we do anymore as modern people. That's very strong in, in uh, Europe mm -hmm. as well because mm -hmm. of that. So it yeah. looks like something of the uh, an antiquity, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's dig into a couple of these myths. Um, I'm I'm interested, though, in in perhaps defining what religion is. <laughs> I know you talk about it in that book. <laughs> How do we go about defining religion? You know, for if I had been asked to define it, I think you maybe think a lot about it, a lot about what is religion. Wait a minute, what is religion? If it's not that, what is it? But. Um, so this is what my own definition, that religions are structures created by our culture to support people's connection to the transcendent. That was my definition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> tell, me what, tell me how you would define religion. 
Yeah, me, I would define it a bit differently, but I can follow along with your definition quite uh, quite far, actually. It's just that there are expressions of religion which don't really deal with the transcendent. For example, atheist Jews or atheist Buddhists and so on, which really keep everything within their philosophical frame um, within the world, let's say. Or let's take uh, the example I give in my book, the, the idea of the Tao in Taoism. You can go two ways with that. Yeah, you can see the Tao as this impersonal type of God, this flow of the universe, this dynamic, the way as it's literally translated, which which sets everything in motion and keeps the order in the universe. And you can see it as a divine force in, in the universe, but you could also simply see it as the dynamics of the world itself, of the yin and the yang, if we stay within the Taoist frame, where the, the, the dark becomes the light and vice versa, and where all the poles in, in the universe have this constant dynamic of flowing from one to the other. But that's a bit like uh, the force of gravity. It simply happens. That's how it's structured. That's what's going to happen. And if you look at it from that perspective, which some Taoists might do, then it becomes not so much about the transcendent something and more about the the laws of nature or something Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. So that means then that we do have religious expressions which aren't necessarily focused on the transcendent. But that being said, so what what do I do with religion and the definition? Because, yeah, well, all scholars have debated for a long time and they really haven't figured it out yet. But my definition um, eventually is religions are languages. Religions are psychological, existential, spiritual languages. They're not languages with words and with grammar, but they're languages with symbols, with rituals, with stories, with ideas, and with lifestyles. And they're languages that try to express and communicate, like all languages do, but what they try to express and communicate is the stuff that normal language isn't good enough for, where normal languages stop, which is often the transcendent. So that's why I can follow a long way, because oftentimes when we try to give words to those things that we really feel are there, but they're transcendent, they're more than we are, then our language becomes too limited. And then we need all those kinds of symbols, which are which carry many meanings, not just one, because that transcendent something has a lot of aspects to it that we just can't put into one single word. So we use a symbol and we relate to that specific transcendent thing, whatever it is, we relate to it in such a way that it really impacts our lives. So we're going to create rituals around it. So it's it's a language hole for me that expresses the stuff that matters in your life and for which normal words don't quite cut it. And what is the importance of uh, seeing religion as a language is that it, for me, the importance is that it stops you from looking at religion as something that you can neatly define in certain aspects that it would or would not have, just like normal language. Language helps you to communicate, but you can't really say Dutch or English, they are this and this. Yes, they use a couple of words, but all languages do and so on. But what exactly defines Dutch? That's difficult to say, certainly because the Dutch language 500 years ago, well, I can't speak it, I can't read it, and still it's Dutch. But it completely morphed over 500 years. That's the same thing with religion. With religion, we have the tendency to think that Uh, There was a prophet once, let's say the prophet Muhammad, and he defined what Islam had to be. And now all Muslims for the last 1400 years are following whatever he said. And that's the real Islam. And everything that deviates from it is not real Islam. Well, no, not really. If it's a language, then it has morphed and taken shape in various ways, just like normal language. If it's a language, then you get dialects, then you get forms of religion that probably even can't converse with each other, 
let's say, a Thai Theravada Buddhist, when he comes into a Zen temple in Japan, really doesn't know what to do. But still, both are Buddhist. So, And that's the same with languages. You've got dialects. If you go from one place to another, you all of a sudden don't understand the people, even though they're speaking your language. That makes it hugely interesting. So the, the reason for me to call it a language is to open up flexibility and to stop acting as if there's a specific thing that would define a religion and thus also not. It's focused on something transcendent. Well, yeah, some are, some are less. Oftentimes it is. I agree. Generally speaking, or, or let's say in a statistical sense, most of the times within a religion, people are referring with their symbols to something transcendent. But, and then we can get back to the definitional problem and why I said that secular worlds are the same. I do think that in a secular society, people also have a language which also constantly refers to something transcendent. And so the difference between a religious and a secular language is non-existent for me in that sense. And to give some examples before the listeners think, what are you talking about? Just one simple example would be nationalism. The idea of a people that you belong to, and that people has existed for so many hundred years, certainly in the case of Europe. The borders have changed so many times. The fact that I got born here really in a natural way doesn't determine who I am. But in a nationalist idea of the nationalists in Belgium, or in Flanders, I have to say, because it's mostly a a Flanders thing, nationalism here, then you get this transcendent idea of the people that you would belong to in the past, in the future, and that creates your identity. It goes together with symbols like flags and with stories about the mythological origination of a certain part of the country or the country itself, and so on and so on. So that goes to show those languages are everywhere. and Transcendence might be there, but if it's there, then that also goes for uh, secular societies as well. Do you think morality is there? Morality, by definition, will also be there. Like I said, if religion is a language about the stuff that matters, yeah, well, the way we do things is really what matters. And morality is a necessarily or, or a necessary component to it. If you see the world or the story of the world the way it should be in a certain manner, then from that will mostly follow that you also think that we should organize uh, the world in such a, in a specific way to make it more concrete. If you really feel connected with every aspect of life in the world and you see this ecological vibrancy all throughout the world... Uh, yeah, then, well, you'll want the world to live in a more ecological way. I know that's something that you're very um, aligned with and that you're also very interested with. So that's why I use the example. I think I think your definition is so interesting, and I really hope that we all ponder this and kind of take this into our being because it does feel very fluid. You know, it mm-hmm. feels it feels like it's not like stuck anywhere. It it it. it <laughs> It's hard to describe, but it, yeah. it, I can see, though, it, with that understanding of what religion is, then I can see that all of our thoughts about it are very, very narrow mm-hmm. and, and confining. And what you're doing is saying it's, it's, it's much more fluid than that. And so, um, so, so all of our judgments about it really need to be kind of fluid too. Let, let, let loose on that a little bit. And let's take a look mm-hmm. at these mm-hmm. things. So let's take a look at some of these. I, yeah. I, I do want to, um, I, I, I want to address a, a few of them. Um, first of all, first of all, I, I do want to address just pretty briefly this spiritual but not religious thing that is really big. It's mm-hmm. really big in, in the States. And, and I think I shared with you before we started the recording that is, as a unity minister in my own denomination, which is a non-denominational denomination, <laughs> we're, we're very clear to say we're non-denominational denominations. <laughs> um, you know, we, we like to attract the spiritual but not religious. And I, I'm like, mm-hmm. what is that? You know, what is that? 
And I think the the judgment is that all these people have left their religions because they felt um, confined or they felt abused or whatever. They left certain belief systems, left certain churches or whatever. And so come to us. So anyway, I think uh, let's talk a little bit about spiritual versus religious and then go into um, mm. this, the um, myths about religions being dangerous and some others. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, spiritual but not religious for me, it really is a difficult divide. It, if people want to say, I'm dealing with the stuff that's on the inside and I try to to reflect and to contemplate on, on the spirit within me, absolutely, I, I can agree. I, I understand what they mean. And I also can get that they try to say, well, that's more important to me than the religious edicts or specific convictions or the way you have to ritualize your life and so on. Yeah, sure. but. Even that aspect is something that has always existed all through history in all religions. To take the most obvious example, Jesus Christ himself in, in the Gospels is constantly railing against the, the Jews of his time who were oftentimes very uh, rule-based and so on. And he tries to say, guys, guys, maybe uh, maybe the inside matters more than the outside and in various kind of passages and stories you'll find that and you'll see that the same thing in in let's say a completely different side of the world in Taoist literature it's very typical that the Taoist poets went away from the courts from the palaces because they were too rule-based because they were too suffocating because they were too socially oppressive and then they went outside and they said well here i'm living the real life here Dao flows through me here in nature i'm not doing anything everything happens through me not because uh, and I'm not following all those strict rules anymore, which suffocate yourself instead of giving you freedom. So you'll find that literature everywhere. But what does that mean? That we have to say that Jesus was spiritual without being religious? That would be a bit bizarre. And and so all through history, this this kind of dichotomy certainly did exist. But to say that, oh, well, but the traditions before they were stuck in the rules and didn't have much spirituality. But today we've noticed what real spirituality is and we can do without all the outer forms. That becomes a bit bizarre. And and because of two reasons. The first I've mentioned in, in history, that doesn't really work. The other part, which is a bit bizarre to me, is that you cannot be without form as long as you're human, as long as you're not only spirit, if such a moment would ever arise in our existence. But as long as we're human, we'll be in a body and we'll have to communicate. And so we're going to use language. Acting as if that you're spiritual but not religious is a bit like acting as if you're communicating stuff about spirit without using language. That would mean complete silence. That's an option for some people, but that's mostly not what the people do when they say they're spiritual but not religious. There will be forms there, whether it is getting together with a group, whether it is doing regular prayers or meditations or whatever, there will be certain forms there. One perfect example I could give is uh, the five rhythms dancing, which I appreciate a whole lot. And my wife is really into it. And sometimes I go along with her. But that's a good example of a group that comes together to dance in a very free-flowing way. There's very few rules, bare feet, no alcohol, dance as you like. And and so within that group, and, and certainly the teachers who teach those five rhythm dances, they, they will use a lot of spiritual language. And for a lot of people, it might feel like a gathering of the spiritual but not religious people. Oh, there's no dogma there and everybody can do what he or she please. Yeah, that's true, partly. On the other side, 
if you can claim that you have a certain closeness to Gabriel Roth, who invented the five rhythms, uh, well, that gives you a bit of a higher advantage, makes you a bit more guru-like, let's say. Within the, the practice itself, like I said, it's pretty ritualized. Bare feet, there's an altar there, there's a Buddha statue there. Most people who gather there have the same set of ideas, relatively speaking, about the world. And I could continue. So there's really no reason why five rhythms dance would be less religious than, let's say, a prayer dance of uh, American uh, natives, um, uh, native tribes, or uh, let's say a Kechak dance in, in Indonesia and so on. That's just one concrete example of people claiming spiritual, being claiming to be spiritual but not religious, will have a certain form as well. Now, why is this important? Because you could say, okay, well, we can analyze it in that way. But the importance is, for me, on the spiritual level itself. So I, I certainly don't mind that people, because they're spiritual, not religious, do what some people decry as cafeteria religion, where you pick and choose a bit from here and there. In itself, I don't have a problem with that. There's been religious intermingling and mixing all through history. So that's not a problem for me in itself. What I do have a problem with is that acting as if you're spiritual but not religion, a religious often makes you blind to the stuff that happens. So it makes you incapable of seeing your shadow sides. And shadow sides being a Jungian concept is very popular in lots of communities where people would say they're spiritual but not religious. And so it's actually from within their own logic that I see the problem. If you, cl- if you pretend that you can live without structures, then you'll become blind to all the structures that you truly have with a lot of consequences. There's lots of spiritual groups where the guru claims there is no dogma and here everybody can be free. Yes, he claims it in the beginning. And what you see after a couple of years, he becomes just as oppressive as those structures in mainstream religions that you have rightly criticized. So the criticism of certain institutionalized forms of religion, I completely agree with. It's just that Don't get blind to them when they happen to you yourself in your own community because they're bound to happen if you act as if there is absolutely no power disbalance in your group. If you, Because you're so spiritual, don't do the effort to be critical to your own group and, and segment of, of uh, the spiritual path, then, then it might lead to very oppressive um, uh, manifestations. One of the more recent and well-known examples would be Bikram Chaudhry of the Hot Yoga. Loads of people do yoga and Hot Yoga as well because they're not supposed to be uh, heavily deep into Hinduism, it's spiritual practice, but not a religious practice. But everybody can see what happened to uh, Bikram Chaudhry and how he abused loads and loads of women. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's where our consciousness is. It's 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 not like a certain place anywhere is going to be with with <laughs> without this need to kind of structure it. Or there's, mm-hmm. you know, if, if 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 in our shadow is something that isn't able to um, really claim our own authority, then we're going to create authority structures in our world. Yeah. Whether it's in a spiritual group that has mm-hmm. no rules. Or it's in a government, or it's yep. in you know an organization, and and I think that's yeah. why the shadow work is so important because we're absolutely we're, yeah we're putting and, it and out there to 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 go on uh, to go just one step further. One of the interesting things is that the mainstream religions, if we can call them that way, have a long tradition of dealing with that kind of stuff. It just so happens that um. Uh, reading uh, more and more about the Desert Fathers and so on, because I'm going to give some lectures about monasticism in Christianity somewhere. And so while reading the old texts of the Desert Fathers, there is one passage in Cassianus, uh, it happens to be, where, where the Desert Fathers are discussing what is the most important virtue of somebody who becomes a hermit. And eventually... 
after a long debate, they come to discernment. Discernment, the, the capability of knowing that what you're doing in your spiritual life is really good, or is it just your ego playing with you? They put it in different terms, but that's what it comes down to. Do you really know whether it's your ego and your shadow sides playing with your feet, or are you really treading the path the way it's supposed to be? So discernment is is a, a very uh, important virtue, and it has been, if you only want to look for it within the traditions, it has been uh, taught about long and hard, and the religious traditions are full of treasures that can help you find this discernment. But if if we're going to act, I don't need all of that because that was religion before and now I'm completely free. Mm. Maybe, again, from a spiritual standpoint, maybe you should be more humble and find (laughs) some ways of tempering that ego. Okay, I think that's really interesting. I I completely agree. Discernment is, it's really up for all of us individually and also collectively. Um, Let's Mm. pivot a little bit because I think what I hear a lot from people is this number six myth that religions are dangerous, that Mm. religions are are responsible for all these wars and all this violence in the world. And we hear that a lot. And I, I think it'd be easily refuted, but that's, I think, one of the things that the quote secular world and those who've left religion behind, and, and I, you hear it all all the time. You hear Facebook it all posts, the time. whatever, all the time. Yeah, religion, absolutely. yeah. yeah Let's yeah, talk yeah. about religions being dangerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You do indeed hear it all the time, uh, and like you say, it, it can be easily refuted. And most easy refutation I always use is: let's just look at the 20th century. That's about the only century that we can really say that there was a non-religious world, supposedly the secular world, Europe and the US and the religious world because in the 19th century half of Europe was still very much dominated by ecclesiastical structures and so on so it's it's difficult to find a period in history where we can really make a comparison and if we take that 20th century by no means is religion the biggest killer? By no means at all. I mean, two world wars which were fought because of nationalist ideas, lots of conflicts because of the communists versus the capitalists in the Cold War, lots of uh, civil, uh, just civil wars within countries and so on. Within the first 10 biggest conflicts in the 20th century, none of them was really fought over religious motivations. So that's why you're correct in saying it can be easily refuted. Then the question becomes, if it's that easy, why do so many people have that idea? And I think it brings us right back to what we were discussing with the spiritual but not religious, in the sense that it blinds you to your own violence. It doesn't only blind you, that's its use. That's the use of the myth. It it is used to say that those people over there, being all those religious people on the uh, in the rest of the world, those still have a problem. They're irrational. They're not really modern, but we are modern. We moderns, we don't do any violence. And then you go like uh, two world wars, uh, an invasion in Iraq, and so on. Oh, oh. But they didn't know what democracy was, so we had to go there and bomb them into it. <laughs> okay, so that's not violence. No, that's collateral damage, something <laughs> like that. And that's that's the function of the myth. It, it blinds you to your own violence and it acts as if you're not capable of it. But those others, you constantly have to stop them from becoming violent. And so it, it legitimates your own violence as as preemptive almost as something protectionary against the religious violence. Yeah, those so those wars, those religious people's wars were like bad wars, evil people, yeah. stupid people. You know, our wars are noble. Our noble <laughs> yeah, indeed. See, that's the whole thing. But that that also brings us back to the idea of language for me. Our religion as a language and the necessity to see it that way. Because 
if we're going to get stuck in this us versus them of religious versus secularism, we really can't get out of it. And when I make that comparison of the 20th century, it's not to say, oh, all the democratic countries were a problem or because uh, the only uh, country that ever threw an atomic bomb was a democratic country. No, no, that's not the point. The point is not that secular would be worse than religious. That is not the thing. If religions are languages, and the whole idea of secularism is a language as well, then you really can't blame that system in itself, whatever system it will be. It's a language. Compare it to languages. Yes, I can shout to people in English. I can say the most obnoxious, ugly things of others in Dutch. That doesn't make Dutch or English an problematic language in itself it also allows you to write poetry to do science to do all sorts of stuff that is really beneficial to the world it's the same for religious languages of course the symbols and the rituals and the lifestyles can be used to foster us versus them categories to to ignite a certain fire in people and to have that fire um, burn all sorts of things that you don't want burned. But it can also ignite a certain fire of love, of hope, of uh, approaching the other in his or her otherness, and so on. All those things exist within the, or has have been expressed in the languages of all religions. So yeah, you'll see violence everywhere because sadly enough, humankind has shown itself to be a quite violent uh, animal from time to time. And yes, it has used both its normal language and its religious language to 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 ignite that violence. You can, do it for, you can but, use it for good or for not good. You know, yeah. like yeah. And and I think as I as you're speaking, I'm I'm thinking about the what people think about religions, the the rules and the dogma, the us versus them, beliefs and oppression. That is not unique to religion not at, at all. all. At all. That's in science. That's in the secular world. That's in corporations. That's in that's in that's our world because it's in our consciousness. Indeed, indeed. And that brings us back to religion. Religions have, within the language of the the traditional religions, there has been loads written, literally, and meditated and thought about exactly that. It is in our consciousness. So what are we going to do about it? What tools do we have to reconfigure that consciousness? And then you get meditation and prayer and pilgrimages and fasting. And you can name any type of typical religious uh, ritual. And it's mostly about reconfiguring that consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's also part of this us versus them, of the secular versus religious. We don't need it anymore. It's something of the past. It's something for the museums. But when you do that, then you lose all the beauty that you can need to reconfigure your consciousness today. Yeah, I I think this is fascinating. So let's move on a little bit to oh wait, before we before we leave the religions are dangerous, there's one more thing that came to my mind is I think that our world often characterizes wars in terms of religions that may not have religious roots. That you know, I'm thinking about like in Ireland, the Catholics and the Protestants. And, you know, when I was younger and, and hearing about that war, it seemed sounded like a religious war. But when I learned more about it, it was more about the politics of the time and how they felt about being part of the UK. I mean, being part of England or not. Correct? Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's certainly a good example. And that goes for all wars. It's it's also very bizarre in a historic sense. No, no serious historian would ever attribute a conflict or a huge conflict like those to one particular aspect like religion. And that goes for all wars. But but that's why in, in a secular world, it becomes easy to just say, oh, but it was a religion. And then people go like, oh, yeah, well, I don't really have to delve into the intricacies and the nuances there. Because religion is seemingly good enough as a reason to explain it away. Right. Uh, but yeah, it goes for all religions. And it even goes for those religions that we call the religious wars of the 16th and the 17th century and so on. The Protestants versus the Catholics on mainstream Europe, uh, on mainland Europe. 
same thing there. I've got plenty of examples, uh, which I take from uh, William Kavanaugh, who wrote a, an enormously interesting book about it, The Myth of Religious Violence. So I, I built my case mostly on what he has done. And um, yeah, so he, he gives plenty of examples that it really doesn't work to see those particular conflicts as religious conflicts because half of the time protestants were fighting protestants catholics were fighting together with protestants against catholics sometimes even the catholic charles was fighting together with muslim turks against catholic france so that that really goes against what we think that those fights were really about and what they were really about was the formation of the nation state that would yeah. lead us a bit too far, but the, the the coming up of this new idea that there is a monarch or a, a state and a government which is a centralized body which will be the governing body for a certain region that originates in that same moment, and within it's also not to take religion completely out of it, but the discussions between Protestants and Catholics turned out to be hugely beneficial to those powers that were recreating, coming from a feudal uh, landscape, and were going to a nation-state concept as we still know it today. And that's really what those conflicts were about. Yeah, and I think that um, characterizing it as religious conflicts helps to bolster this idea that the nation state and the secular is superior. <laughs> yeah. 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 Indeed. Yeah. That's why that's the use of the myth to act as if it's only normal that the state has the monopoly of violence. Yeah. But yeah. I, I live in a, in a region where we did have two world wars and people tend not to look up those figures, but it's about 40 million and 60 million people died in those wars. That's what nation states can do for you. That's right. A, oof, it's amazing. Yeah. That's it, almost yeah. all big conflicts of the past 2,000 years before that combined in numbers. But at least it's not religion. <laughs> <laughs> at least it's not religion, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we've got about eight minutes, and I want to kind of pivot to that last one. Secular society is completely different from religious society. I think we've touched on it some. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have a quote from your book, being secular does not necessarily mean that people are also more open-minded or that society is construed on a more factual and rationalistic basis. Um, do you think that secular, secularism is a religion? Yeah, yeah. In my view, it's the logical conclusion of everything that I write. I say in my book, it's a hypothesis. I'm open to debate and we'll see how far it gets in, in academic circles. But for me, it's the logical con consequence of the fact that you can't really separate it to everything that can be said of religion can also be said of a secular world and vice versa. So why the difference? And the difference only seems to be to create this us versus them. It's not like those seven myths about religion are all only created by the secular world. Uh, let's say the, the fundamentalist religious people also love to use them. Yes, my religion is very clear. These are the tenets. This is the way of doing it. Never mind all the historic variety. Never mind the contemporary variety. There is only one way goes against whatever we can see in a sociological sense, but that's what they claim. And so they also claim that the others don't belong to them and they're heavily against them. And yes, they legitimate violence in such a way. But above all, they tend to amplify one another. The secularists who look at religion that way and then the fundamentalists who have the same approach and so both can say of each other, oh, look at them, they're the problem. They're the so same, they're, yeah. They're the same, yeah. So they help each other in creating this image. And if a secular person sees a fundamentalist, he goes like, see, that's what religion is about. And I go like, but I'm religious too. I don't do anything like they do. I don't think like them. Why would my way of being religious not be normal religious? Why is theirs, which is statistically abnormal or statistically not the mainstream let's say why is theirs the perfect example of religion but so they help each other in in perpetuating the seven myths and and the, and, and above all the dichotomy between secular and religious although in the end it really isn't maintainable and even if 
even if we could find some element that would clearly define the difference between religious and secular, even if, what would it matter? Because even if we could do that, like we discussed, that doesn't mean that religious people are necessarily more violent than secular people. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily more irrational than secular people. It doesn't mean, and so on and so on. So on a on a life level, it really doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I find that secular is um, they 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 do this it, they do the same things. <laughs> We're superior. We're the best. Yeah. We're number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the funny things for me is if secular or the secular ID is a religion or is part of a religion as well, then it's a religion which claims to be the best religion because it's no religion. A right. bit like the denomination that's not a denomination. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. And I think that um, science does the same thing. I think there's scientism. Mm -hmm. There's a whole belief system around science, you know, and there's yeah, certain absolutely. accepted narratives. And, you know, it's like it, you're either one of us or you're not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're either a believer or you're not. Um, I the, the last thing I want to bring up before I, I turn this over to you to just to say your last few words, um, you asked the question, why is there not a passionate plea for the separation of multinational corporations and state? <laughs> I love that question yeah. because there's this constant, we need to separate church and state, separate religion yeah. and state. Well, why aren't we trying to separate corporations and state? They are like in bed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that, again, that's the use of those myths of religion. It helps you to legitimize the way the world is and not see the power structures which are really there. Right. Uh, certainly in, in Europe and in the US as well, it's not like a church is uh, planning to overtake the whole of the US or is capable. Maybe some would like to, but it's, none of them are capable. And the same in Europe. I mean... No, the church, the Catholic, certainly not the Catholic Church, doesn't have the capacity whatsoever to be a dominant force in society, but multinationals are. But to constantly be scared of the boogeyman religion, it allows you not to see the shadow sides. Yes. And the shadow sides are in a consumerist society, in a religion that defines or that, that creates the language that upholds such a consumer society, of course, what you'll notice is that multinationals get a free pass, yeah. Yeah, I, I love your language because I I agree. They're, they're putting religion up as the boogeyman. Like, oh my gosh, look at that thing over there. And everyone's yeah. like, no, 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 we don't want that. Meanwhile, you know, there's this tampering <laughs> over here, this reality that we can't even see, we're blind to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Jonas, this has been a delight. I just love your work. And I want to turn the this over to you just to make sure that if I didn't cover anything, we, we certainly didn't cover the vast amount of your work. We just kind of touched on a lot of these things, but I want to let you have any last words and um, before we close with something that, in case I didn't cover something that you think is very important. Well, maybe one thing I think we covered a lot, but uh, it's just a reflection that popped into my mind when you were uh, just uh, two minutes ago also talking about science and, and how we don't see things there and how scientism is also something uh, that is alive and kicking at the idea that we will be able to explain everything in nothing but scientific terms. And for my book, one of the fun things for me was when researching a bit more for the chapter about science and religion, I came to the Big Bang theory, because the Big Bang, that's the most typical one that I'll get. But why do you need a God? We all know how the universe started. It started with the Big Bang. And when I was younger, I was always like, that's weird. If there was a Big Bang, I won't use it as a proof of anything. But if it proves something, it probably proves the existence of God. Like somebody stamping his foot and saying, let's go, guys. <laughs> That's what it seems like. And then I was so pleased to figure out that it was, I already knew it was invented by a Jesuit priest to start with, so a religious person and a Belgian Jesuit priest. That's just coincidence. Um but the fun thing for me was to figure out that in those days, that's exactly what people thought. So he came up with this hypothesis and the scientists of those days, heavily ingrained in scientism, 
were like, oh, no, that sounds too religious to us. That that seems like to be proof for the existence of God. We're not going to go there. So they put it in the fridge for a couple of years. And then they had to take it out of the fridge because they discovered the background radiation in the universe. It's a very uh, difficult, complex thing. Uh, but I leave that over to physicists. In any case, in the 70s, they figured it out. And that was part of the hypothesis of the Big Bang theory of uh, Lemaitre, who invented it. And so they kind of had to go back to it and say, oh, well, uh, maybe this is a more uh, a more solid way of approaching it. It goes to show that somebody, because he was religious and he said something, not even wanting to use it as proof, that wasn't his game, but still, because he was religious and because it seemed like possibly confirming the existence of a god, the scientists did away with it. It just goes to show again that a secular, rational world is capable of doing exactly the stupid things that we always claim that religious people do and so on. It's just <laughs> a beautiful example of the intricacies and the nuances that we need when we talk about religion. Yes, and in your book you have lots of examples of how science and religion were intermingled and working together uh, in in the past. And so people will have to get your book to read about that. Uh, I do want to close. Thank you so much, Jonas, for being with me today. I just so appreciate your work and this conversation we had was so very interesting. Lovely. Thank you for having me. And thank you listeners for being with us. And I now close the Spiritual Forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being. Thank you.